This week's episode is an idea generation for Mage. It starts with Adam talking about his creative process, and then after about the 17-minute mark, I give some ideas on how I generate the Mage-sounding nonsense that I use in episodes and in games. At the end of that, Adam and I pass it back and forth for the credits. It's very clearly two smaller episodes that have been jammed together, but I thought they fit together nicely, so that's why I'm doing it this way. On with the show. Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast where we work hard towards ascension, so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson. I want to discuss the topic of creativity today. Many moons ago on the Discord server for this podcast, I proposed a talk on how storytellers could more easily find ideas for their mage games. A few people expressed interest, but I had to shelve the idea as I could barely keep up with the reading and recording for the Tomes of Magic series. Today, I'd like to cover that topic. My initial plan was to describe the method I use when I want to come up with ideas. After asking other hosts of the podcast how they come up with ideas, I realized the methods we employ are very subjective. What works for them would do nothing for me. I then considered what was behind the methods. I researched the topic of creativity, but found little of value. One noted expert stated a few people are born with creativity while most aren't, but we shouldn't be jealous because creative people are usually miserable. <laughs> After some real digging, I found the answer from the most unlikely person, an out-of-work British actor. Some of you are wondering if I'm the right person to cover this topic. You've heard my story ideas on past episodes of Tomes of Magic and are no doubt thinking, let's be honest, Adam, you're no creative genius. But that is precisely what makes me the perfect man for this job. If I had impressed you with my creative output, you would think I'm some sort of natural talent. Any advice I offered would not apply to ordinary mortals like yourself. It is because I've worked to raise myself to the point where I can generate material in a hurry, then choose something serviceable from the list, that I can offer insights to the mage storytellers and potential mage storytellers listening today. Make no mistake, you'll need your creativity to prep for game sessions and handle the curveballs your players throw you in the middle of a game. There are very few published mage stories for you to run, so it won't be long before you're staring at a blank page or screen and asking, what could I do in my next session? When I want ideas, my method always works. I play energetic, upbeat music while I pace back and forth in my home office. After about 15 minutes, I can sit down to type, and there's always something to type. This method probably won't work for you because it isn't your method. I learned recently the method is the focus, not the effect itself. To perform the effect, you have to raise your arete high enough. Before I get completely entangled in this metaphor, let me explain. The British actor and screenwriter John Cleese of Monty Python fame gave a talk in 1991 on creativity. He explained anyone can be more creative once they understand how creativity actually works. In the 1960s and 70s, university researchers learned a lot about the creative faculties of the mind. They ended their research when they reached the point of diminishing returns. To this day, their results aren't widely known. As far as experts can tell, everyone has an equal capacity for creativity. It isn't tied to intelligence or natural ability. Creativity is a skill, not a talent. If you remember only one thing from this episode, let this be it. I'll say it again. Creativity is a skill, not a talent. The rules of mage help us unpack that. A talent is something you're naturally good at. A skill is something anyone can learn by practicing. You can raise a talent from zero to five with experience points, but never mind that. No rule system is perfect. 
Many people want to join the NBA, but only a few are accepted because only a few have high athletic talent. The NBA is the professional basketball league in the United States. Anyone can learn to drive a car, and most people do. Driving is a skill. So what sort of skill is creativity? It is the facility to put your mind in the open mode. There are two modes of thinking, open and closed. They are also called soft and hard and other things as well. Closed thinking is practical, logical, and immediate. It is so practical we spend most of our time in that mode. Our education system is built around it. After 12 years of education, few people even know the open mode of thinking exists. Did the technocracy have a hand in that? The portrayal of the technocrats in the early editions of Mage comes to life in discussions like this. The open mode is slow, intuitive, and impractical. Connections form between unrelated things, familiar things become strange, and ideas of all sorts crop up. People we call creative are good at entering the open mode and capturing what results. Now that we understand creativity, let's get back to methods. I told you my method probably won't work for you. That's because you need to develop your own. Just like copying the notes of a mage with a different paradigm is a waste of time, copying my method will likely lead nowhere. Neuroscience students everywhere love to say, neurons that fire together wire together. If you do the same thing when you enter the open mode of thinking, that activity will be connected to that mode in your brain. After some conditioning, the activity will ease the transition to the open mode. It's like Pavlovian conditioning. You know, the old story where the man fed the dog while ringing the bell. Soon, he could ring the bell with no food present, and the dog salivated. The two things were associated. You can do that to yourself, only without the slobbering. No, I don't think of my listeners as dogs. Look, let's set the metaphors aside. I, I'm bad at them. If I'm really going to help you be more creative, I have to help you get into the open mode. Here is my practical, hard-nosed approach to entering the open mode. Closed mode thinking is going to lead us to the open mode. If you're a mage fan, you should understand life is full of paradoxes. You need four things. Space, time, confidence, and humor. Find a place where you can be alone that is free of distractions and pressures. Distractions and reminders of things pressing on you will knock you back to the closed mode. Now you need time, uninterrupted time. Have some kind of clock handy and give yourself an hour and a half. You can adjust the time up or down to find your sweet spot with practice. For now, an hour and a half. Most people take about a half hour to really get into the open mode. Then you have an hour to spend there. Put the clock where you can see it. Until the time is reached, everything else in your life is on hold. If this exercise is new to you, you will soon realize something you forgot to do, something you need to do. Keep a notepad nearby and write it down. The paper remembers for you, so let it go. Back to wandering, wondering, what ifing. What you do while you enter the open mode will become your method. One person I know drives his car while pondering. That became his method. I listen to music while pacing about. You may gaze out the window, flip through picture books, or dance. The laptop or second notepad is where you write down your ideas. Let go of even those. Rather than develop it further, find more ideas. In the midst of this, develop 
confidence. Attitude matters. Banish fear and anxiety. It is easier to do little things we know we can do than big things like pull ideas from the air. Don't give in to the temptation to take care of something practical. This is idea time. What if I can't think of anything? That's a worry, not an idea. Goodbye. Like mages, doubt can short-circuit our efforts here. You have to tell yourself you have time. Everyone has the ability. And follow those creative thoughts wherever they lead. Creativity is like muscles. You already have them. If you exercise, they get bigger. If you don't exercise, they remain small. Remember, you're not evaluating ideas here. You're producing them. When the creative time is up, you can evaluate the ideas then. During this time, nothing is wrong. Do you understand now why mages get accused of hubris? When making breakthroughs, they have to go where their inspiration leads. It's hard to tell if an idea is good or not until you try it. What is the dividing line between confidence and hubris? The creative process puts us in touch with the themes of mage. I like that. The final component is humor. Joy, nonsense, and a playful mindset accompany the open mode. Many people think we need to be serious about serious things. We need to understand the difference between serious and solemn. Seriousness does not preclude humor. Solemnity does. Solemnity is for funerals and public rituals. It assures others you are considering their feelings and concerns. It has its place. Your creative time is no time to be solemn. You can joke about a serious matter, look at it backwards, and turn it upside down without hurting anything. What happened to the piggy bank that was left in the syndicate boardroom? If two cabals at Doisetep decide to swap jokes, how long does it take for Chantry leadership to restore order? Two pieces of advice here. Your mind will wander, and it may wander too far. If you're counting the solar panels on the perimeter of Autochthonia, gently guide your mind back to the topic. If you make a strong effort to get back on track, you'll enter the closed mode and then you're done. In a gentle, mild voice, encourage your mind to wander around the edges of the topic instead of the distraction. Also, don't take the first right answer. Original thinking often comes from thinking about the topic longer and producing multiple answers. Later, you'll choose the best. An advanced technique is collaboration. Get some people you know together and brainstorm. Pitch ideas and build on the ones suggested. You have to be careful with who you choose to include. A critical or negative person removes the lighthearted mood required. If everyone is friendly and upbeat, no one becomes defensive and ideas flow. Cultivate your group carefully. Also, live collaboration is vastly superior to the online variety. Now I'll switch gears to offer resources. I'll drop these in the show notes, so don't worry about writing anything down. A Whack on the Side of the Head is a book by Roger Van Oek from 1983 that is still in print today. I recommend this book because it is amazing. It offers a chapter for each of 10 notions that hold people back from being creative. Along the way, it gives humorous illustrations, quotes, exercises, and other odd bits to stimulate your thinking. It repeats the idea of getting more than one right answer. Many things in life have more than one solution. When you push past the obvious, you may find your best idea. Emile Chartier said, nothing is more dangerous than an idea when it is the only one you have. I don't have time to summarize each chapter, but there are numerous gems here. 
the practice of asking impossible questions to get your thinking into unfamiliar territory is priceless. The final chapter attacks the commonly held notion, I'm not creative. Confidence is a factor in being creative. If you think you're not creative, you're not. If you think you're creative, you are. This is an example of the subjective nature of reality. Or is it? When people say they're not creative, what they mean is they don't have the ability to be creative. But that's a false assumption. False assumptions usually lead to bad results. Bad questions lead to bad answers. If these people instead said they're not being creative, that enables them to address the problem. Spend more time being creative, and they will become more creative as a result. Sometimes the subjective nature of the issue becomes objective if you dig down to a correct understanding. The same author also wrote A Kick in the Seat of the Pants. I recommend that too. Some of the best material on creativity was written for corporate managers, the very people who desire creativity the least. A technique that has worked well for me is one I call the walking daydream. Go someplace interesting and imagine you're in a fantastical place. Interpret everything you see as a part of that fantastical place. I visit a large botanical garden in Dallas, Texas. It has an East Asian section, an ancient Greece section, many different looking gardens. I imagine I'm in a horizon realm walking through a chantry's garden. I think about what sort of acolytes would be brought from Earth to work here. A bench looks like a great place to chat. What would two mages be talking about there? A huge white tree there is beautiful. An Akashic Brotherhood chantry donated it when it was a sapling. What warning did they give on that day? As I walk, the scene changes, ideas flow, I jot them down. Works for me. It might work for you. Sandbox design helps creativity. Instead of planning your story around a problem for the players to solve or an enemy for them to defeat, think of a place or area where four problems are happening. The NPCs and situations that interest the players become more important and involved. The less interesting things remain minor. Combine unlike things to spark ideas or look over lists of ideas. In the fantasy role-playing space, the OSR community has latched onto this principle in a big way with their role tables. I'll toss out three books, but there are so many more. Tome of Adventure Design by Matt Finch, Electric Bastion Land by Chris McDowell, and The Dungeon Dozen by Jason Schultes. These books drip with ideas. Books have much to offer. Collections of the newspaper comic strip The Far Side can jolt your thinking. Older books like Legends of Tono, Classic of Mountains and Sea, and The Kojiki are worth a look. Charles Dickens and G.K. Chesterton are two authors who have displayed a talent for making ordinary things seem wondrous to me. Books of famous quotations should not be overlooked. If you want to stimulate creativity in your players, present something cliché or ridiculous, then make it clear they can't ignore it. A fire-breathing dragon or prancing unicorn are silly. But when they're menacing the players or tearing through a public market, it just got real. What was fantastical is now immediate. What was unbelievable is now in your face. What was beneath your notice is now the only thing you notice. This shakes up your players' thinking. I want to share something. We have listeners who have never played Mage but are interested in it. Drawing instructor Nathan Oliveira taught 
All art is a series of recoveries from the first line. The hardest thing to do is to put down the first line, but you must. Running your first game of mage is the hardest thing, but you should. After your first game session, it gets easier. As we wrap this up, I want to give this summary. Good ideas are like hyperactive two-year-olds. I have three children. If there's one thing I know, it's how to handle two-year-olds. When you want to lay hands on a two-year-old, chasing them won't work. They're faster than you, smaller than you, and know every nook and cranny of the house in a way that you can only envy. However, if you make a show of indifference, if you won't even look their way, you only need to wait a few moments. The two-year-old will come to you. You see, they really do want your attention. Then after waiting a little, you only need to reach out to snag the little fellow. Then it's time for a haircut. I apologize if I brought up any traumatic memories for my listeners. Some of you are no doubt saying that may be a cute story, but what on earth does it have to do with ideas? It is simply this. When you need that idea now, your brain sees an immediate problem that needs to be solved. It switches into the closed mode to get right on it. But the closed mode isn't where ideas happen. Frustration and self-incrimination set in. What you must do is imagine you're the person standing a few feet away, looking at yourself. You think that poor person, if he'd only calmed down and stopped stressing, that idea would come along. If you relax, let your mind expand to fill the room and downshift from urgent need to mild expectation, the idea will saunter by. It wants to find you. You just need to be ready to receive it. Now that I've shared my secrets, everyone will be writing better story ideas than mine. And now on to part two of the episode, My Methods for Generating Mage Sounding Nonsense. Adam did an episode on his creative process in general, so I thought I'd supplement it by adding some specifics as to how I generate things for games. This also gives me a chance to work on reading solo stuff because last time I did it, I really think I went way too fast. One of the kindest compliments I've ever received was someone saying I was good at generating mage-sounding nonsense. Often when I'm doing an interview, especially on something that isn't based in mage, I want to be able to tie it to the game quickly. So the ability to generate things like Oh, your discussion of place as a locus of self of that culture seems like it would tie well with the Kavadi notions of extended personhood and says people. I could see a group of locomancers of the Waving Banner Society interacting with their elemental kinforms to access nodes or something like that. I just invented the term locomancer and the Waving Banner Society didn't exist until I said it. But... If it's done well, it gives a bit of depth to the world I'm creating with the guest. So my goal here is to share some of the methods I use to make a setting more evocative and to give myself a little more material to work with in play. Additionally, I'll give some ideas on how I come up with plot threads, which is kind of the other half of setting description. The key is not just made sounding nonsense, but nonsense that seems to add to the story. If you've ever worked with me on something, you'll know that I love breaking anything down into a two by two grid. When it comes to storyteller options, and games, I break it down into whether something is external or internal to the existing game as has been established, and then whether it's an event or a person. The border between these are fuzzy. For instance, an existing NPC tries to rob a chantry to get money to break their sister out of jail. You can view that as internal or external depending on how involved that NPC already is in the story. I like this 2 by 2 grid because it forces me to kind of vary up my game. If you do want to have a game that's strictly interpersonal strife and conflict, or a team of essentially supers going out into the world and dealing with things, you can. But I like having this internal-external 
character or event question kind of sitting there. I generally want my characters to have a lot of points of contact between them, and that takes care of internal events and internal characters as part of that 2x2 two two grid. By having a bunch of threads to grab at, it makes it easy to figure out what magey nonsense I need to develop. Many of my story ideas come from little bits of plot and setting that catch together that I then tie up with some new bit of lore to kind of add it to the tapestry of a game. Often the starting point of these knots of plot are character quirks or character details. So how do we evoke those? One way to introduce this is during character creation. For instance, when I ran Hunter one-shots, I was looking for ways to connect characters quickly and to make them feel as if they were part of the same cell. I did this with a bunch of connecting questions. These can be added throughout play and can be a way to introduce character development for a character who didn't get much spotlight in a session and can justify giving them experience points if that's a way you do it at your table. At the end of a session where someone maybe wasn't forward in the action, you can ask a character development question. This will tie to something that was not specifically mentioned during that game, but could tie into something future. Maybe you ask them, there's a particular magical practice that always seemed evil to you, even though it wouldn't on first glance. What was that practice and why? Maybe the player tells you that stone lore was always menacing as the first stone lore practitioner they knew retrieved stones from grave markers, and that association has always stuck with them. You could choose and give them a list and say, armory, dance, or flower craft. Which one do you find menacing? And now you get to figure out what their justification is. Does the armor have something to protect or hide? Did the dancing in question evoke the movements of the risen dead? Is the flower craft some Midsomar-like thing, or just maybe a strong allergic reaction to pollen? Maybe in another case, you've received a warning from your mentor about a particular tradition you thought you had cordial relationships with. What was the warning, and how do you follow through on this warning? This is an opportunity to introduce lore into the world from the player's perspective and is a vote for maybe where they want to go. Maybe they received an aphorism like, do not trust the Akashics, some smiles show cheer, others merely show teeth. Which, as a storyteller, is a sign that maybe you should introduce some shifty Akashics. Or maybe the song of the Celestial Chorus is beautiful, but they seek to dissolve you in its sound. What does that mean? Answering it is a direction for gameplay. Maybe there's a particular magical instrument you want to add to your practice that seems out of sync with the rest of it. What is it, and why does it fascinate you? Why is the etherite interested in maybe practicing intercessory prayer? Why does the chorister get so fascinated with crystals? Why is the virtual adept fascinated by high umbral spirits? Hmm? When doing character creation, character questions can be expanded to create direct links between characters. Some questions may require the assent of both players and are an area of act collaboration, while in other cases you may allow a character to state something with little agreement with the other player, again, assuming it's not too big. Questions like this could include, you and another character have a shared failure in your background. It isn't a dark shame. Others might not even consider it shameful. What was the failure, and do you ever talk about it? You and another character both believe something most mages in the know consider a myth in the awakened world, and sometimes talk about it. What is it, and why don't other mages believe you? You and another character both owe a debt to a strange entity or person. What is that entity, and how did you incur that debt? You and another character both have a site in the city you consider somewhat sacred for strange reasons. What is it, and how do you observe the sacredness? In each of these cases, the new element could either expand on an existing NPC or character, or generate one. Asking about a mentor generates a new mentor, and asking about a new place generates a new place. The implied state of the world adds further to this. If a mentor is newly introduced but hasn't been commented on before, 
Why not? Was there a fall from grace? Are they dead? Was this just an oversight? Was the apprentice disowned? All of these are allowed, and a little bit of retconning may be required to fit it in. On the event axis, I often want to say, what is the state of the game and how could it be changed? As in, what are the considerations the group is taking in and what could change that? This could go both ways and isn't just breaking things. It's easy to generate plot from theft, destruction, death, or failure, but new novel elements or suddenly improving ones can also be one. Maybe a Chantry without access to a node notices that suddenly Quintessence is practically bubbling up from beneath their feet. What does that look like? They operate out of an old church and one of the fountains has started flowing again. Do they call someone in to look at it? Do they tell others? Name-wise, this could be known as the divisive fountain as the Chantry vies for who gets how much access to this intermittent source of vital quintessence. The external version of this is that a city fountain seemingly starts turning paper boats that people sail on it into tasks, as if they become actual good luck charms. How do the mages capture it? How do they investigate the source? Do you know who the people folding the boats are? What would you call it? And what would you say it looked like through prime vision? Maybe the tiny boats look to be staffed by small spirits that are jumping in and out of the tiny craft. Maybe the fountain gets christened the salvation bath by mages. Only boats crafted by sleepers during daylight hours seem to get charged. How does this war with other people also interested potentially in this quintessence play out? What happens when a sleeper notices something about these boats and starts selling them in a craft store? What does it mean to have these bits of tass in mortal hands? With enough such bits, stories kind of fall out the other end for me, and you have this list of people, places, and events to work with. If the creation isn't obvious, this again can be put back on your players and may provide the seed for an idea. For instance, you may just stipulate something about the game world and work backwards. What if a particular dumpster were a portal? Where would it go? What if a particular person had a great destiny but looked otherwise mundane? What could that mean? What if a particular day were a potent juncture? What if a particular parking lot made correspondence magic easier? Stipulate the change and then work backwards to try and justify it in your game world. For instance, you simply state that an NPC thinks a particular dock at the Navy Pier is sacred. Lucky Pier Teen. You previously introduced a mentor that two of your characters respect, Lady Evangelon Doxiados, the ancient Greek necromancer. You decide to tie these two together. So why is the pier sacred, and why does she visit? Did the pier host a tragedy? Maybe a fuel ship exploded, killing a number of sailors. One was her first love. Her love still haunts the pier, and she gives offering to the ghost to ease the afterlife. Maybe these offerings are being co-opted by another evil spirit or consumed by a barrow hound, which is causing problems, but she can't bring herself to stop supporting her lost love. Maybe the pier is in a location of metaphysical importance. Was the pier previously a place of passenger disembarkation during the 20th century when immigrants were entering the area? Maybe the Low Umbra is roiled in this area where a dozen dozen views of the afterlife suddenly came into contact with each other. Maybe the necromancer has opinions on who should win that war and spends much time easing relationships between the undead there. The timber used to construct the pier comes from a sacred grove, potentially, and the very timbers absorb the spirit of the stevedores and longshoremen who worked on it for decades binding their souls to it. She seeks to release them and create from the timbers her own boat, which she may use to freely sail to the underworld. It could also just be a dingus, a distraction, or a red herring. The necromancer simply likes the view the pier affords. The important part of this demonstration was that the sacredness and the fascination were stated first. I didn't say the pier hosted tragedy and Lady Doxiados found it sacred by extension. I stated she found it sacred and tried to fill in the hole that this created as a result. When I'm introducing external elements, I think about the energy level I want tied to them. In general, I want it to introduce 
curiosity, excitement, or useful internal conflict. There are other levels of energy that you can have to an event, but this is just the one I'm going to have now. When I'm trying to come up with ideas on the fly, I try to figure out what level I want them to be at. Not everything should be a mere curiosity, and not everything needs to be world-threatening. Curiosity is low energy. And these kind of threads generally come when a player would say, ah, oh, well, that's interesting. Curiosity plot threads are a sign that whatever is going to happen is probably not a threat, at least initially, doesn't need to be handled now, or can serve as a reprieve from a more weighty plot item. I may find this useful to have on hand to let players sig to me that maybe they want a different kind of game right now. If you just emerged from two weeks in the Fondic Labyrinth, maybe they want to hear the strange story about a lost true fae. These beats simply start low intensity, but they can end up in other places. What at first is a curious case of visiting true fey can skyrocket in potency when some changelings become very curious about this being and rival factions develop strong opinions on what to do with this potentially lost arcadian one technique i do for generating this type of plot thread is to combine an unlikely adjective with a noun what is a reminiscing nefandus what is a dying white suit technocrat what is a dead-eyed chorister? What is the hypnotic knitting circle? What is the tainted church? Each of these creates an idea that we can expand on, and most can easily be linked up with an existing location. Let's take one and run with it. The dying white suit. Maybe this is a character the players have dealt with before. What would be a low-energy request from this character? Maybe a white suit is not up for bodily rejuvenation, i.e. life extension, and is looking for the characters to connect them with someone who could help extend their life, and they are willing to pay significantly. This isn't necessarily necessarily urgent, but sooner rather than later is probably good. Maybe they have a final message they just want to have delivered to their family, who they can't find after they were disappeared, or they dropped off the grid after the white suit's apparent death. Maybe the white suit has important information about a supernatural threat, and they just don't trust the technocracy and want to see what it does in another set of hands. Maybe the technocrat asks the mages to deal with some minor inconvenience to prove that they can be trusted first. The second energy level is excitement. Excitement comes from anticipation, and to me that means something that is going to happen relatively soon. I think obvious clocks are underused in most games of mage. Tying events to a particular time and place can be powerful and give fixtures around which game time can advance. I find this very useful if I don't want the world and the game to get too out of sync. So by stipulating that the next plot event is going to happen in two months, I can easily allow my game calendar to catch up with my in-world calendar if the two have fallen too out of sync. Maybe the spirit of your city embodies one day each year on the date of the town's founding and holds court at City Hall in a little-used basement. The City Spirit Exchange tasks for favors. Maybe you can learn about a dead node, a hidden wonder, or another mage contact, a potential spirit aid. If only you can clean up a few blocks that need love. What the actual problem with that block is determines the kind of energy level that the game is going to have. It could simply be a tedious case of mages needing to clean up a lot of trash, which they think is below their social station, or possibly repairing the destroyed penumbra of an area that hosts a penumbral blight, which may involve much more, much more dangerous work. Your town has some belief strong enough that there's an unusual holiday. Maybe your town Fallfest is actually a thinly veiled reinterpretation of the time of reaping where the local infernalists subtly try to make a blood offering to Jadrax the Enduring Scream. You probably want to stop this. 
I think major holidays are often forgotten as dates in games around which events can occur. Do your characters take holidays? Do they visit their family? Do they have vacations? Pursuing someone through the streets can be a fun chase scene, but what if you're pursuing someone through a Christmas parade or a 4th of July pageant? Maybe your note is only accessible during this solstice juncture, but it lands on a weekend this year, and it's going to be when the local park's spring fling is held. How are you going to get 4,000 sleepers to ignore you drawing down a... uh, quarter of the year's worth of tasks. The third element is internal conflict. I try to find things where the party may have thought they agreed on something, but actually don't. Then I try and figure out events that will elicit this. This could be something you ask the party directly. Maybe your group differs on how lost spirits should be treated, using magic in the criminal justice system, returning items to other cultures, how to deal with repentant infernalists, and other such moral questions. You can plan these ahead of time or have periodic questions introduce themselves and see if it catches on any of the players. If nothing else, these give good opportunities for a character to affirm their worldview and to uh, improve their bond with the rest of the Chantry or the group. My next bit of advice is on how to describe a scene. A general recommendation I have is to provide enough detail that a police sketch artist could write out the scene or a courtroom artist would be able to illustrate it. This also forces you to sharpen your descriptions. There is a interesting phenomenon that I've run into where whenever you invoke something that's not the normal archetype, the image in the listener's mind tends to be sharper. This was revealed wonderfully to me in a series of exercises one of my high school art teachers who also taught at the MFA level did where he asked students to paint a prompt from memory. When the person said dog, they got mediocre paintings of dogs. But when they said Boston Terrier with piebald fur, the paintings in general were much better. He first realized that this when teaching a class on still lifes and found that the paintings he got of a chair were much better when the sample chair was positioned upside down on the viewing stand instead of right side up. So how do we do this in our game? Well, specify animal breed and bearing. Indicate what a person's manner of dress, affect, skin tone, age and general state are. You may find these inspire you to other things. When you start including throwaway NPCs that are old or young, locals or people from clearly another place, you're giving yourself descriptive pieces that players may find engaging that will help you build out the world. Only you know the level at which your players will assume a given detail is important. Uh, Is the Laotian man with a parrot on his shoulder merely odd for the area, or will the players think this is a lead that needs to be tracked down and investigated? Whenever I provide a description, I try to include three details, one to describe the manner of action and one to describe appearance and then just another detail. I include this in my storyteller notes along with a portrait of the character if I have it. These don't need to be purple prose, but they can be just about anything you make up and that includes new words. For instance, if I say that the towering black man who managed the bank dirtled over to you after realizing the error in your account that you caused due to some magical handiwork, I don't know dirtling to be a word, but just kind of the sound of it gives an implication of someone who is kind of humbly walking over who would rather not have to. So just kind of apply this whenever necessary. A very young sunburnt drywaller who looks like she's carrying the worries of the world on her shoulders. An ambiguous subway passenger who seems very pleased with what they're reading while nervously shifting from foot to foot. A ponderous slow old white woman who sways as she shuffles mumbling softly old Hungarian folk songs. Also, I recommend that you use randomization as much as you feel you can while generating things. This can help absolve you from creeping bias at the table. I've played in a lot of games and especially one-shots where everyone was kind of just stereotypes. 
I walk into the bank and there's a white male manager with a female teller. The bodega owner is of a particular race class and appearance. You don't need to invert every stereotype, but a few can both get your players to think about their assumptions as well as making our games reflect the diversity of our world. If you have a game set in Maine, which is the whitest state in the Union, yeah, chances are most of the characters are going to be white. But if you set something in most major cities, it's going to be a bit more diverse from that. And I think our description of the setting should represent that. If nothing else, it makes it more real. Uh, Learn the name for clothing parts and the names of implements within paradigms if you're going to get new words. I think it's powerful if you're willing to learn new words. I think it's powerful to talk about the parts of a suit or of a dress. For instance, the peaked purple notch on the coat of the title in Hermetic was another show that she would not be ignored. The French cuffs on the tuxedo were pinned in place by hypnotic oval cuffs. The double-vented jacket moved as the locksmith jaunted across the street, showing their modern taste. This applies to paradigms, cultures, and ethnic practices. Just learn a few key terms at least to start. Maybe you have an Akan Ghanaian mage who does magic through weaving, and you do a tiny bit of investigation into kente cloth. Uh, One piece of folklore holds that the cloth was created by watching the spider patterns of Anansi, which may cause a character to have a grudging respect for spider shifters. You find out that the warp are the long strands held still as the weft is the is within the shuttle woven between them. The shuttle is the actual piece that transports threads across. The heedles, the individual parts that control the warp threads, is often controlled by the feet. Maybe you have a character who sees this and is so deft with it they can write with their toes. The cloth colors have symbolism to them, as does how the cloth is worn. In the royal court, only the king covers both shoulders, and only their family may cover one shoulder. Maybe the character visits the high umbral spire of Niame, the shining one, and is required to leave both of their shoulders bare as a show of deference. Only on gaining spirit patronage to the court are they allowed to cover one of their shoulders. This is all from just the barest bit of familiarity with just one cultural element. Research into another culture is an act of love towards humanity and a willingness to grow. In addition to clothing, I find it useful to know the names or terms for gemstones. You may also want to do a deep dive on this if it proves to be part of a player character or non-player character's paradigm. You can also ask the player to give you a set of important items, colors, finishes, and other bits to better interpret their magic. Maybe your prime sense reveals that the simple deep azure cabochon bracelet is magical. A cabochon is a stone that has been rounded rather than cut and faceted. Stones and gems are common globally and each have different associations in different places. Opals are considered a sign of bad luck in some places as their shifting color represents illusion and deception. In other areas, it's a sign of clear wealth. A woman called the Opal Queen appears. I think this would be a valid name for an actual region, or it may be a sign of quiet. Maybe your Chantry calls it an audience with the Opal King whenever a character is lost in twilight. Word roots can be useful. Tempest and Temporal share the same root of tem, meaning the season or time for a thing, which becomes dem and became day as well. All share a likely root meaning, a share or or part of something. So day, democracy, demon, temporal, and tempest all come from the same place. We switch these. The demon clock chimes out justice as the agents of the god give their share of things. Knowing this allows you to create spirits and entities that connect the two together. Maybe the Tempest of Hours becomes a phenomenon on your game, or the Demon of the Day, or the People's Clock all tie together this common meaning. 20 or 30 foreign words can be helpful if it is tied to a group that your characters are interacting with. Knowing the term for things like the spheres in a foreign language gives you the start of the names for rotes and maybe spirits. Fuerza is the Spanish word for force, so a character may encounter Lady Fuerza as an avatar incarnation 
explanation, an exemplar, a paradox spirit, or maybe just a figurative term for learning the sphere. Studying the stalwart lady may mean to practice with sphere forces. Let the players help provide this. Anyone with spirits in their paradigm should have a list to work with, and they should share this list with you. This may involve common objects if it's a more contemporary set of spirits, like fluorescent light bulbs, fire alarm, deadbolt, and e-bike. Come up with rules on how spirits are generally addressed or chosen. Maybe your Cajun character always refers to spirits in the feminine form, and everyone is madame. We'll get more into spirits later. Sometimes an impossible description can also make sense, which can make something emotional or deeply paradoxical. The deep gem earrings were like the tears of a weeping demon and framed his wicked smile. What color are demon's tears? I have no idea, but it seems evocative. The feeling of the Ramas Ka materializing was like an angry gelatinous fog sluicing through the barrier between worlds seems evocative. The impending bend of space tied with the use of high-level correspondence came to the mouth like the taste of chalk and annoyance, but it was effective for escaping the traditionalists. I don't know what annoyance tastes like, but I think if I ask someone, they go, eh, I, I think I get it. Another thing you can do is come up with more terms for common mage phenomena. This shows that different groups have different ideas of what something is. Maybe choristers refer to paradox as dissonance, or a werewolf kin refers to it as Gaia's spite. Your Ashanti Weaver character from earlier calls paradox flaws humbling knots or thread-tied memories. Maybe your Death Talker calls wraiths something besides wraiths like the departed, the unbodied, the soon-off, or the mourned. Your Hermetic Wraith may refer to magical power as the touch, the way, grace, or aptitude, all capitalized. I try to avoid things from getting too long, such as calling fate the draw between what is and what shall be, except on occasion or when a very poetic description is needed. Finally, some more specifics on generating mage-sounding nonsense. I can't give you all my secrets, but here are some. One, add common modifiers like hyper, geo, helio, spectra, and such to everyday words. Here are some examples using this method. A metatuba, a geospline, transgraffiti, psychoamperage, demiquintessence, paragiology, oversoul, orthoanathem, heliolegend, or hypertarot. These are literally at random and I typed them down as they came to me. Not all of them are going to be useful, but paragiology, hypertarot, and oversoul all seem like things that could pop up in a game. Maybe add a hyphen between two words like you're playing Exalted, which uses this at like god tier abilities. Maybe your characters encounter spirit gems, blade wands, the steam church, a wrath node, grief bees, the angel home, a vitae shield, or a fake cloak. Have fun. You can just randomly capitalize something to make it seem more interesting. I tend to try and find out what some older or fancier words are for common everyday objects, and I can turn them into game terms. For instance, the manse could be a term for the mental fortress a mage makes to protect themselves from mind attacks. The visage is the appearance a mage takes on when entering the umbra and showing the ideal self. The pall is the protective magic used to hide your life when entering the low umbra to avoid the interest of spirits and specters. You can add an adjective to these to make them more evocative. Throughout mage, we have literary ways of referring to things. Maybe instead of just the manse, you look to alchemy and call your mental defense the mercury fortress, as that is the metal sometimes associated with thought and quick wit. Or maybe the iron fortress of the psyche, this is now a term that can become a title, Praetor Ignis, Master of the Mercury Fortress, which refers not to a place, but to an ability. The visage becomes the woven visage, and the pall becomes the verdant pall, and both of these call back to your Ashanti weaver. My super secret technique is usually a case of combining an adjective, a number, and a noun, and being able to do some infilling. Alternatively, noun, weird adjective, noun can work. 
I think the winner for this within the world of darkness is probably Wraith, where we have the Weeping Bay and Instigia, where the Death Lords hold council. We have the Seat of Sucker, the Laughing Lady, and so on. And I just find all of those wonderfully evocative. And here are some that I came up with. The Cray of Four Feathers. What are the Four Feathers? Is this a reference to feathers being a sign of cowardice? No idea. The Three Gems of Mad Wisdom. This could be a set of actual gems, but as it's Mad Wisdom, I would probably have them be things like Gravel. Maybe the gems are figurative and indicate a character's mastery over a particular type of crazy wisdom. The Chantry of the Mendicant Eye. I like the word mendicant because it has a good mouthfeel like a squatulate or obliterate, but it means one who is given to begging. What does it mean for an eye to beg? The Laughing Throne. What does the laughter refer to? Is it a sign of madness? Is it ironic in that no one who has ever sat on it has ever told a joke or something else? Spirit names are kind of a separate thing, and this may include both what the spirits call themselves and what other people call them, what is often referred to as endonyms and exonyms. We may call them jinn, but they may call each other drihalinari, those of two worlds. And having both of these immediately gives the idea that these jinn have a culture that we are not privileged to, as well as how they view themselves. Name generation is generally a function of picking something very near a name, if you want something a little bit odd, and then just kind of making a new mouth sound. Alamander, Nalissa, Thenry, Cars. For more umbral names, consider the sound associated with the phenomenon and just letting your mouth go or finding words related to it and modifying it slightly. I'm a sucker for Greek and Latin endings, so adding Tor, Trix, Ix, or Tron to such is good. Maybe the muse of air is Sibilatrix or Sibilix. The spirit of fire, Clonacraclus, which sounds to me a bit like a campfire. Washu, the spirit of the sound of sifting sands. For high umbral spirits, I try to make more pleasing mouth sounds. Eloton of the House of Weeping Love. Pulmonius, the breath of life renewed from the House of Denied Mourning. Brantikes, Messenger of Ailida. Titles are a great way to allow space to either build world or create space. The Court of Weeping Love that I mentioned earlier is that a part of the spire of paradoxical feeling. What other emotions could this create? What of the house of calm fury or of amnesia recalled? Maybe the house of keening silence has anti-banshees whose wail eliminates all sound and causes people to be stunned in self-reflection as the world falls away. And this is all just kind of from a title. Relational titles also give you more to work with. Titles like Seneschal, Messenger, Envoy, Chatelaine, Sergei de Fer, Aide de Camp imply a larger presence. These are all things that indicate that you are working for someone else. This allows you to fill in that someone else. You can create additional nonsensical titles that mean something to spirits. What would it mean for someone to be the master of candles, the keeper of the sacred mirror, the chamber lord, the man's keeper, the wall guardian? All imply something about the spirit and the world it comes from. What do they mean? You don't need to know, but it's a starting point and it gives you something to play with and all the while, I think, makes the game more evocative. Uh, finally, good words can inspire the name of a spirit. Pablum is bland or boring food. What would the spirit pablum be? Maybe it's a spirit of entropy, life, or mind that bothers you if you're not excessively, excruciatingly, overly cautious. Only by getting through a day doing everything it says, which requires you to more or less just sit in place, will it leave you. Maybe pablum is a static spirit of gluttony that feasts on taste but leaves the food, making the food seem excessively bland. Someone has removed the flavor from it. 
How do you get rid of pablum? Maybe you have to prepare exceptionally bland food to start with, or you have to prepare exceptionally eclectic or flavorful dishes until it is sated and moves on. Susurrus is a wisp murmuring or rustling noise. Maybe it's a paradox spirit that causes a constant noisy wind to be present, which interferes with instruments involving sound or distracts people, or it causes three dice of counter magic against forces. Maybe it's a spirit of doubt that can paralyze an artist or a business person before making a big choice. Maybe it's a spirit of rumors that causes all sorts of secrets to be spread around the world in the silences between moments. Whenever a secret of yours is told, a gong noise is heard in your head, but you don't know what that secret was told to. Maybe to one of your technocratic contacts, maybe to a lost farmer in Malaysia. Tatterdemalion is a term for someone wearing ragged clothing. Maybe it's a spirit of charity who wanders around in exceptionally shabby regalia. Anyone who helps garb him and gives him an offering receives a point of task as he hands you a bit of rag from his sleeve before taking whatever garment you give him. Anyone who doesn't offer something needs to outrun him, and he is very fast, or to be overcome by his odious stench from having not bathed that clings to you, increasing social roles by plus two difficulty when attempted to be done in person. This is a start. These are some of the methods. Have fun with them. If you really like this or you really didn't, uh, tell me. I could expand this into a publication. I could do some random tables, and we can go from there. But I hope these methods will help you at your table in generating made-sounding nonsense. This has been Mage the Podcast, where we always think the right idea for the given moment is the one you've come up with. This episode was made possible by Ben Bendlow, Oracle of the Balefire Count of the Horrid Shores of Blackmore, Berto, Oracle of the Imponderable Scion of Infinite Benefice, Buck Gregory, Oracle of the Keeper of the Frozen Flames of the Putrefying Anathor, Christopher Phillips, Oracle of the Last Philosopher Judge of the Aetherian Kings, Guy Stewart, Oracle of the Island of Constant Stories, Jay Widener, Oracle of Jellix, Cat and Spy for the House of Frozen Dreams, Josh Hillerup, Oracle of Tree Blood North Home, The Maple Spirit, Mikhail, Oracle of Felimus, Spirit of Academic Papers. Pukaji, Oracle of Anti-Arcadia, the land of fae that attend to the practical in the everyday. Sean Gallagher, Oracle of the Spire of Resplendent Histories, and the crew of Erebus, Oracle of the Mad Thane in Exile. Also thank you to Archmaster Andrew Adelstein, Archmaster Brad the Blue, Archmaster Dan Svensson, Archmaster Derek Semsek, Archmaster Leroy Bryce, Archmaster Morgan Ron, Archmaster Nathan Weaver, as well as Alex, Alexia, Ambiversion, Andrews S, Anon, Badurfi, Blaze Hibbert, Blake Ryan, Brandon, Bryce Perry, Bubba the Pale One, Chris Blake, Sin Shodas, Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribner, Darren Hennessy, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Eli Levenger, Eric Schwenk, Fraggerock, Friedrich Owl, George Laura, Henry Kraft, Ia Bull, Jason Kennedy, Jason Vines, Jason W. Briggs, Jay Gatsby, Jeff Brin, Jenna F., John Magnuson, Jolin Andes, Laws and Stuff, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Chris Kinner, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Proyle, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Nibero, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick McNamara, Patrick Mulder, Rachel Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Ruben Joseph, Ryan Stray, Rob H., Ryan Kendi, Samuel Tobin, Starfish, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, Vincent Hamilton, Walter, William Connolly, and William Martin. Our EP shout-out this week is to Bubble the Pale One. Bubble was the nickname of Neil Pert, drummer for Rush, who is dead, and thus also a pale one. So I'm going to list some Neil Pert facts. Following personal tragedies in the late 1990s, Pert took a hiatus from music and embarked on a motorcycle journey across North and Central America. He chronicles his experience in the book Ghost Rider, Travelers on the Healing Road. In addition to his drumming prowess, Pert was the primary lyricist for the band Rush. His lyrics often explored philosophical, science fiction, and sociopolitical themes, contributing significantly to the band's intellectual and conceptual appeal. Pert was inducted into the Modern Drummer Hall of Fame three times, once for Best Rock Drummer, Best Recording for Moving Pictures, and Best Instructional Video. His best-known nickname, though, is probably The Professor. Now, back to Adam for the rest of the credits. Please send me some emails to cheer me up. That's magethepodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and other aggregators. 
If you like the show, others might like it too. And if you leave a review of Mage the Podcast, it makes us more visible in their searches. You can follow us on Twitter at Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web at magethepodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes there and see the complete show notes. We have a YouTube channel now where you can find our episodes. There's a link in the show notes, but you can also search YouTube for Mage the Podcast. We're also on Mastodon. The link is in the show notes. This episode was assisted greatly by our executive producers. If you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it will help us keep doing what we've been doing. You would also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Until next time, truth until paradox, baby. <laughs>